Good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians as we continue a series of sermons called Chosen for Holiness. We're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, unpackaging this meaningful verse, um, really serves as a foundation for the imperative exhortations that flow out of it and continue then through the balance, really, of the epistle. Paul will list out for us a number of things related to how we interact with each other, calling us to unity in Christ. Of course, the doctrine of election is important with regard to our unity because it serves as the foundation for that unity, for that love, and how we interact with each other within the body of Christ. He then speaks to the issue of family relationships, work relationships, relationships with people in the world, how we do things because we are the redeemed of Christ. And so, it's very important for us to get our arms around this important foundation and understanding what it is and why it is that God saved us and into which He did that. Uh, And this is what Paul is setting before us here in this verse 12, um, as we will find today further as we work through this. So, before we get into it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. What a glorious time to be together as the redeemed, assembled together, unified together, a microcosm of heaven, if you will, looking forward to your return, the future together forever and ever and ever, singing praises to our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when we're united with Him and our faith becomes sight, but in the meantime, Lord, We pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, equip us, cause us to stand in the wicked day, cause us to be salt and light in a world that is dark and decaying, and help us to be people who are hopeful and confident in the message of the gospel, and as such, willing to proclaim it to all that we meet and see. We pray, Lord, for the presence of your Holy Spirit today. We pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to comprehend and understand things, that you would renew within us the joy of your salvation and cause us to revel in the wonders and magnitude of your great love for us and the grace to which you extended to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us first. We, re- we, are, we rejoice today that we are known by you, and we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for all that you have provided to us. Keep us and preserve us for your glory. We pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, let's begin with verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, bearing in mind that this language that Paul uses here about the laying on, the putting on, the putting off is very important. We're going to see that again in verse 12, and as we've already begun to unpackage that idea That's an important metaphor for Paul, that tailoring type language is so important, showing how we've been fitted with something new and different from the old and dirty things that we had, the old dirty clothing being fitted with the new righteousness of Christ, if you will. Verse 10, and having put on the new self who is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, we see here in verse 12, which has been the focus, that Paul begins to set forth for us some important principles as it relates to our conduct in holiness, living out the reality of our salvation in a way that demonstrates that it's genuine and real and impactful. Certainly, Paul has an anticipation here that the redeemed of Christ are going to live in a certain way. And indeed, what we understand from verse 12 is that we were chosen by God for this very purpose, to live for Him in a way that demonstrates the reality of our conversion in the world, in our relationships with each other in the church and outside of the church. And so for Paul, he wants Christians to ultimately what? Act like Christians, because that's what they were saved to do. And that's pretty direct and pretty straightforward. But something, something that's often lost in the shuffle and the scuffle of things, we forget these things. We also forget the importance of such profound doctrines such as the doctrine of election. And so this is why Paul opens up this portion of this epistle here in chapter 3, verse 12, with that important doctrine. We talked about that in part last week. I have a few more things to say about it this morning as we move forward into the more practical application of this passage. I think it's important for us to be reminded of of what the, the, the confessions say about this issue, and I think the London Baptist Confession gives us some important insight into this issue of the doctrine of election. It's purpose. Indeed, there's a mystery associated with it. But in section 3 or chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession of 1689, paragraph 3.7, it reads as follows. The doctrine of this high mystery, God's truth known only by divine revelation of predestination, is to be handled with particular wisdom and care in order that men giving attention to the will of God revealed in his word and being obedient to it may as a result of the certainty of their effectual called call, be assured of their eternal election. In this way, this doctrine shall provide a cause of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation or comfort to all those who sincerely obey the gospel." Now, it's important, as we know from the standpoint of the confession, to be reminded of the purpose of the doctrine. The doctrine of election is given to us in a way by God's Word and through the understanding that we receive through the Holy Spirit as we read His Word and comprehend these things, that it's to be a point of praise, of reverence, and admiration, not of gnashing of teeth and wailing as it often is. People get so very upset about this. But as I said last week, God's purpose in election was to bring to himself a people to give to his son, not a mess of rabble, but those who are redeemed and justified and sanctified positionally in Christ as a gift to him for his kingdom. 
And so this took place before the very foundation of the world. So we, as the redeemed of God, get to revel in the wonder of this. And this is why the confession points out, importantly, that it should be a cause of praise, reverence, and admiration to God, and admiration of God. It should generate within us a sense of humility, a sense of diligence, and abundant comfort. When I lay my head down at night on the pillow, I get to rest not in the fact that I've done a lot of good things that day. And even if I have done a lot of good things that day, or if I've done a lot of bad things that day, I still get to rest in the comfort of the doctrine of election, knowing that God has saved me and secured me for all time through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That helps me. That helps me get through difficulties. And indeed, as you read the epistles, it's remarkable to me that those epistles to to whom the apostles are writing often make reference to the doctrine of election as a means to encourage them to get through difficult times. You see this in 1 and 2 Peter. In particular, in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to the dispersed Christians who've been sent out from Rome to the outer realms of the Roman Empire where the pagans live and dwell, where life is difficult, life is hard, life is uncertain. And what does he do in 1 Peter chapter 1? He wraps them up in the doctrine of election. He secures them in the doctrine of election. And then he exhorts them to live in holiness predicated upon the doctrine of election. Paul does the exact same thing here in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3. And so the confession is wise to remind us of the purpose of the doctrine and its motivation to live in the context of the reality of the gospel that saved us. As I noted last week, Paul's point to us is that we look at everything through the framework of our gospel glasses. We consider all things in the context of the purpose of our redemption related to the doctrine of election as he sets forth here. And that's what we will see today as we continue to unpackage this important verse. So we see in verse 12 that Paul now draws a logical inference from what he has just explained in the preceding passages in verses 10 and 11. And he will ultimately take up that same verb that we found in the preceding verses put on in verse 10 that we saw, He noted that before, that believers have put on the new self. This is something that God does. This is something that God equips us with and clothes us in. We went back and looked at that picture in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve and how God clothed them in the skin of the slain animal, a picture of what would come in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, the beginning fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And so Paul now, in keeping with that new reality and identification, we are exhorted to put on the graces that match our standing, who it is that we are, why it is that we've been saved. You must ask yourself that question. Why on earth did God save you? To what end was your salvation? Was it to bring about contentment and and laziness and, and great... Uh, just complacency about life and things? No. He saved you to an end. It's interesting to me that you and I, the redeemed of God, have been brought together in the context of the doctrine of election. I know you because you're the elect of God. Isn't that interesting? That God brought us together in the context of bringing a people together before the foundation of the world who would be uniquely identified as what? His body. 
Christ is the head of that body. You and I today are together because of this doctrine. Now, if you're, not, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I am glad that you're here. And I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you that you can call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And indeed, it is your obligation to believe. You must believe. I call you to believe. I call you to turn to Jesus Christ today in faith. To look to Him solely as the object of your confidence and trust. To know fully that without Him you are nothing. That you must have Him. And if you don't, you will be separated from Him forever in hell. That is the promise of Scripture. The doctrine of election does not preclude evangelism. It does not preclude me saying that. Indeed, it compels me to say it. I must say it. But what I must also recognize is that the consequence of this doctrine is that it produces people who are uniquely identifiable because these people then put on the graces that match our standing. We are to become and experience what we have been declared to be in fact. Indeed, even the language, the grammatical structure of the passage tells me, Paul's using the aorist imperative which indicates that the necessary action is urgently needed and demands that it be undertaken at once. We don't delay. Put on. Put on. It's like you in the morning on Sundays with your kids. Have you put your clothes on yet? What are you doing running around naked? Get your clothes on. Well, this is similar for us. Put on these graces. There is an urgency to it. There is a... a, a a push by Paul to indicate that this indeed must be. And he doesn't want people to do it out of a sense of drudgery. Don't you as parents like it when your kids put their clothes on willingly? When you're not having to fight with them, when they're not wiggling their toes and moving their legs and you can't get the shoe on or the sock on or whatever it might be or the shirt and they're looking around and wandering off. It's more enjoyable for you as a parent when you willingly do it, and certainly God would want us to be willing in this endeavor, and indeed He makes us willing. He, he does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. As I noted, we're chosen for holiness, and so it only stands to reason that the consequence of my salvation is that I am going to then do something that is unique to me as a believer. You will note that the graces, the virtues that are identified here in verse 12 are those which are unique to the redeemed of God. They are unique in that they demonstrate the character of Christ. The very holiness of God is communicated through these attributes that we then are challenged to put on and to do it sincerely and with great alacrity, and lightness of heart, and great joy in our minds over the fact that God has seen fit to redeem us. This is what Paul is saying. Now, what's important for us to be mindful of is this also. The consequence of my election, the consequence of what God has done before the foundation of the world, is to create for himself a people who are uniquely identified by the presence of these attributes and by their willingness to do them. Indeed, their joyful contentedness in doing the very things that we're called to do. I think we need to be reminded of that. 
That's very important. All too often, the church looks like the world. The church acts like the world. The church reacts like the world. Even within the church, we have to deal with issues regarding division and anger and upset and things of that nature, oftentimes forgetting what it is that we have been called to be and to do because if we are uniquely identified with Christ. It's interesting as well that in the structure of this passage that Paul uses a middle voice that pictures the subjects as responsible to take this action upon themselves. Now certainly we are equipped and we're going to talk about that more as it relates to the idea of living in holiness. The issue of our sanctification is certainly in play here but with Paul. He wants us to understand this. But what this also does for me is something else. As I understand this issue related to living in holiness, what I'm understanding because of the doctrine of election, what I'm understanding because of the fact that this is a work that God is doing in me, that I'm not doing any of these things to be saved. These things are the consequence of my salvation, not the cause of them. They can never be. They can never be. Salvation is by God's grace. We're reminded in Ephesians chapter 2, it's not of works lest anyone could do what? Boast. Oh, look what I did. I'm, well, I'm quite the catch. Any church would want me. I I could be a member anywhere because I've got it all down. Look at all the things that I do. Isn't it wonderful? Lord, at the end of the day, look look what I've done. Lord, I did great things in your name. I I did it all. I, I engaged in these behaviors because I knew that you were a hard taskmaster and that, that you would want an account of these things. Depart. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. If you come to him in the context of saying to him, I'm doing these things because I have to do them in order to earn your love and your blessing and righteousness, then I'm sorry, friend, it's not it. Your very best is as filthy rags. And the picture used in Scripture to paint how filthy that is is very vivid. It's very vivid indeed. Your very best, on your very best day, your highest achievement is utterly worthless. And so we do these things, these graces, these attributes, because of what God has done in us. And he continues to do them in us. Indeed, does not faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God? That faith continues to be built. What? In the word of God. And as I hear the word of God as an ordinary means of grace, I'm exhorted to be engaged in this process, not to gain righteous, but because I am righteous in Christ. And so in verses 5 and 8, we saw that the apostle chose in each instance, if you go back, to name five vices to be put aside. So there's things that Christians do, and there's things that Christians don't do. In one sense, the don't doing is an active thing because you're not doing them, you're avoiding them, you're not being engaged, you're mortifying them, as we know. But now he identifies five graces that are to be put on. But before he identifies what these are, he uses a clause or a phrase to explain how it is he's able to expect 
obedience to these imperatives. There's a reason that Paul anticipates that the Colossians are going to do these things. Now, now keep in mind, in Colossians, you've got a false teacher who's come in. He's imposed a lot of things on them, legalism, uh, mystical paganism, visions of angels, uh, you know, spiritism in terms of extra words of knowledge. It's a hodgepodge of a lot of nonsense, but it's taken the Colossi church off the rails. And some of the consequence of that is that they're not demonstrating the reality of their conversion. They're not demonstrating the reality of their regeneration because they're now engaged in, obviously, petty disputes, bickering, fighting, claiming things over others, a lack of humility, a lack of compassion, no unity in love because their eyes are off of Christ. And so he uses here, Paul does in this passage, how it is that he's able to expect obedience to all these imperatives that fill out the balance of chapter 3 and flow into chapter 4. And how he does it is this. He says we are to undertake these actions, these virtues, as those who have been chosen by God. As those who have been chosen by God. So this imperative is not laid upon us in our humanness and finite strength, but the word as, as we see in verse 12, indicates that we do it because we are those who have been chosen by God. So we undertake the action as. As what? As the elect of God. Holy and beloved. Now, that, that plays out perfectly in the context of what God intended for the redeemed to be. As the seed of Abraham, would it not make sense that we would then not demonstrate the reality of the consequence of that placement? Would it not be necessary for us to be the very people that God saved us to be? So, as is important. That little word there. You know, I, you know in the legal word... We spend a lot of time and a lot of money fighting over little words. Little words mean a lot, and they can cost a lot. So be careful. But this little word needs our attention. This little word, as, is there for a reason. It sets up and frames the entirety of the balance of this epistle. Again, it reminds us that the obligations that are attendant with these imperatives are not laid upon us in our humanness and finite strength. Paul is not asking you to do these things by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, by reaching in and finding some inner strength, but he's asking you and telling you that you can do the imperatives because of who you are because of the doctrine of election, because God has chosen you, you then are able to do these things. Those whom God saves, he equips. And he equips to do the imperatives. The imperatives, as I said, are a consequence of my salvation. What he ultimately means here is that... um, it's in, the, it's in the same manner as. 
Um, it's, a, it's a comparison, if you will. And it's not merely to identify, but it's to be reminded of the fact that you have been empowered to do something. You've not been left to your own devices and your own strength to do these things. So it's not impossible. You may look at the list and say, Pastor, I can't do that. I just, I don't, I just don't like people. I, I, don't, I don't like my family. I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites, of course. How can I do any of this with any of those people? They're not worthy of it. I don't want to do it. No, you do it because God has instilled within you the desire to do it, and it's a consequence of who you are in Christ predicated upon His placing you in Him. This is quite wonderful. So you could say it this way, put on, therefore, in the same manner as the elect of God, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You could move that verse around a little bit, and it gives the impact, the punch, if you will, of the word, of the meaning of the word as. So as I noted, you could say, put on, therefore, in the same manner as the elect of God. This is what the elect of God do. We have done the church such a great disservice in not teaching this doctrine because pastors are so terrified of it. Well, if you say the word election from the pulpit, half the people won't come back the next Sunday. Well, I don't know. I said the word election last week, and we got a pretty full house here today. <laughs> well, I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. But it's important for us to be mindful. So, what this does, this is serves as encouragement, right? Doesn't the confession say that it is, it's a comfort to us? It's, a, it's something that moves us forward? So you may say to me, well, pastor, how do I do these things? I would first say to you to be reminded of the fact of who you are. That's what Paul's doing. Paul understands that the Colossian believers are going to be the motivation to do these virtues, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're easy to do. It doesn't mean that there isn't need for growth in these things. Indeed, as we understand in the Bible, we mature. If we're not maturing, there's a problem. Paul would write to the Corinthians and say, I came prepared to give you much more than milk. What's going on? You're forgotten who you are. He would do the same thing, or the author of Hebrews would do the same thing. I came prepared to go beyond the first principles, but I'm stuck in them with you guys. What's going on here? So this is a challenge for you to grow. If you're saying to yourself, I, I don't know, I, the whole thing about election, it seems so unfair, patently offensive. You mean to tell me that God chose for himself people to save? Yeah, he didn't have to save anybody. That's the first problem with that idea. You're thinking that somehow you're just entitled to be saved. No, what you're entitled to is permanent eternal judgment. That's the only thing you get. You win. What do you win? Eternal judgment. Great. Now, how do I get out of it? God brings you out of it. That's why we rejoice. That's why we're the happiest people on the face of the planet. How can you walk into church with a bunch of people whose jaws are dropped and sour faces and fighting with each other? Why is it that the church is known for being a bunch of fighters? And I'll tell you, you can walk around and talk to people. I'm not going there. All they do is fight and quarrel. Bunch of hypocrites. Well, granted, that could be the case. 
because they don't understand the doctrine of election because their pastor has been afraid to preach it. Of course, which would have probably weeded out a lot of nonsense and sent the goats scattering and kept the sheep. So, what are we doing? He identifies the graces that we're to put on. We understand that we're doing this because of who we are. Remembering, too, that at the beginning of the epistle, does not Paul call the Colossian church holy ones? Hagios? It's the word. They're holy. They're saints. And so there's an expectation. They're going to live in a certain way, conduct themselves in a certain manner. And so I understand this. As I look at the word as, that word tells me that I am under the electing love of God. And the conjunction, the word as, introduces the characteristic quality of these persons, of a person, those who have been chosen. And here we are considered as we are, to use Paul's oft-employed expression, in Christ. is not what the whole epistle is about. It's a Christological epistle to be sure, but the ultimate point is that there, we are joined together in Christ. There is union in Christ. That, that's the consequence of our union in Christ is to realize the magnitude of what it is that we've been joined to and why we've been joined to Him. This is what Paul's driving home for us. And the language that Paul continues to, do, to use is really powerful. I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the grammar and the Greek and all of that, but it's interesting to me that Paul here is, is using an adjective, those who have been chosen. That phrase refers to those whom God has chosen from the generality of mankind and drawn to himself. You, you can't get away from this, friends. So you might as well just suck it up and, and get with it because you can't get past it. The language won't allow it. You need to be humble. As the confession says, this doctrine ought to create with you humility. Humility. And so the language that Paul uses here as he unpackages the basis and the reasons for my engagement in these imperatives is to be reminded of the fact that I am one who has been chosen by God from the generality of mankind and that he, based upon that choice, then drew me to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, who then regenerated me, gave me the gift of faith, opened my eyes to see my need for Christ, the immediate consequence of, was, of which was what? Save me. I have nowhere else to go. To whom will I go? Where will I run? How will I deal with the problem that I now understand and see? Who can I look to? Where do I put my faith? What is the object of my faith? My faith is in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he did it all. The end of verse 11 tells me that Christ is all. He is the consummation of all things. He performed all things. He did all things. He lived out the law perfectly for me because I never would nor never could. So understanding this helps me to unpackage the realities and the wonders of my salvation. 
noting as well in this passage that the selection is made by God. Does it not say chosen of God? So against the backdrop of fallen humanity, God chooses for himself a people, a people that will be uniquely identifiable to himself by the characteristic life that they live in holiness. Christians act like Christians. I know that seems weird, but in today's world, I mean, we do everything else the world does. We've got gay Christians, we've got racist Christians, we've got CRT Christians, we've got all sorts of types of kind of categories of Christians. We're more identified by our failures than by our victory in Christ. That's reprehensible. So what we understand then is this, the eternal God, before time began, laid his electing, choosing love upon those he selected. It is only in this way that his grace came to us and we believed on eternal life. It is precisely because of this that we are therefore deemed by him to be what? Holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. Now that's important because God alone is holy by nature. Yet because of his grace made possible through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God himself will present us before himself as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I didn't make that up. Turn to chapter 1, verse 22. And we can see what's going on here. Paul laid the foundation for this argument back in chapter 1, where he says... Yet he has now reconciled you in your fleshly body. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? His. The his is who? Jesus Christ. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, Christ fulfilling the covenant of works, clearly what Paul's talking about, in order to what? To present you before him what? holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Is that because you're such a good catch? Because you're a really good person? No, it's because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're a trophy of grace. Pure and simple, you're a trophy of grace. So, as a consequence of that, understanding this then helps me understand why it is I'm going to do these things that Paul lists out then in verse 12. We're presented before himself as holy and blameless and beyond reproach, verse 22. Because of this, he can rightly call us saints, Colossians 1, 2, verse 4, verse 12, verse 26. To this adjective, Paul adds a participle, beloved, he says. Look at this. The perfect tense of this word beloved indicates that we became, or the Colossians became, beloved at a point in time in the past and continue in this abiding state at the present moment. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. So, I was beloved before the foundation of the world. Remember Romans 8.29, God foreloved those whom he predestined, those whom he uh, 
prognosko is the word, those whom he foreloved, that's incorporated in the idea that you're now called what and have always been called this beloved. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? You didn't know the doctrine of election could be so encouraging, could you? Well, it is. And it's all because of what Christ has done. This is all in Christ. So this tense, the word that's the beloved tense, the tense of that word, indicates that we became beloved at a point in time in the past and continue in this abiding state at the present moment. The passive voice reveals that this was accomplished by God's electing love. The, the, the bottom line is this. God simply chose to set his love upon the elect from the creation of the world. Paul here is not indiscriminately laying moral imperatives upon people and expecting them to fulfill them in their own strength. Rather, it is precisely because of this gracious favor of God that we are able to then put on these various graces. Now listen to me. I want, if you don't hear anything else that I have said today, listen to this and write it down. Gospel imperatives are possible. Gospel imperatives are possible precisely because of gospel grace. Gospel imperatives are possible precisely because of gospel grace. Pastor, how do I do these things? Well, you do them because you've been equipped to do them. God has uniquely saved you to do these very things. But I fail. I know you do. I do too. Uh, I fail miserably. I mean, look at the list. My goodness. Put on a heart of compassion. More often have a heart of contempt. Kindness? Uh, I'd rather smack them. Humility? Wow. I look in the mirror. I get more humble every day gentleness. I'm not going to be a prissy man. And patience? Are you kidding me? I want it now. Come on. It's wonderful that God is equipping me to do this, but you know what's more wonderful than this? Than that, rather? It's that Jesus Christ always did them perfectly for me. I fail. You fail. I try. Romans 7 is the normative Christian life. I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I know what I ought to do, but I don't do them as often as I should. I, I want to do them more, Lord. Your law, which I cherish now and treasure, reminds me of the fact that I fail miserably, but I also am reminded of the fact that I've got Romans chapter 8, and I get to fall into it. It's a deep, wonderful refreshing pool of Christ-saturated grace. And I can just bob and float in that for the rest of my life. Christ always had a heart of compassion. Christ was always kind. Christ was always humble. Christ was always gentle. And he was always Perfectly. He never once 
forever. That's why in verse 22 of Colossians, I can, do, I can be exactly what is expressed. I can be presented before the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, I don't not do these things. I do them because of who I am, and I want to do them because of the truths that this, these verses contain. And isn't that wonderful? So you struggle with these things. Go to Christ. Flee to Him. Run to Him. Certainly you need to deal with these issues if they're a struggle for you. But don't forget that your assurance does not rest in your perfect performance of these things. Your assurance rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who did them all for you. All of it. And that's forever. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God, in the context of the doctrine of election, took all the things that Jesus Christ did and applied them to you forever? You're not holy because you're a good catch and you're a nice guy. You're holy because of Jesus Christ. Rest in that, friends. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. You tired of working? I don't mean your daily job. I get that. But are you tired of working for righteousness? Does it feel like you can never quite get there? Do you have a sense that you're never quite measuring up? Well, guess what? You're not. That's okay. Because Christ always measured up. And you get to rest in that. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you resting in his finished work? Do you love to do the things that he, that pleases the Lord because of what he has done for you through the doctrine of election? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? The doctrine of election calls us to that. And now I do these things because I just can't, I want to, I love him, I want to do more. I want to do more. But when I don't, I know Christ has. And that's the comfort of the gospel. That's why it's the good news, is it not? Can you get any better news than that? Now, you're going to hear a lot of bad news this week. In fact, you've got Twitter feeds and all kinds of feeds coming through your phone right now. You're just chomping at the bit to read them. But don't forget this good news. This is the best news you're going to hear all week long. Rest in it. Rest in it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the wonders of your word. Thank you for the power of the scripture. Thank you for giving us the wisdom to unpackage its meaning. Now, Lord, equip us to rest in the finished work of Christ and to know confidently that you have chosen us to do these things, that you give us the power, that you are equipping us to do these things by and through Jesus Christ in whom our faith rests. To our faith add these things. So our faith is predicated, our actions are predicated upon a faith in Christ, the object of our faith who continues to equip and empower us to move forward. Thank you, Lord, for the wonders of this doctrine. Thank you for the joy that it brings, the quietness of heart, and the hope in the future. Bless us and keep us, we pray this day, for your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you.